Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to today's episode. This week, we're going in focus, where we explore more advanced wealth planning topics. Today, we will discuss long-term care costs and options at varying degrees of wealth, featuring Elizabeth Forspan, partner at Forspan Clear LLP, based in Long Island, New York. Before I introduce today's show, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it on Apple or Spotify. We'll help other personal finance enthusiasts find the show, and if you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend as well. Today's show will discuss various options for preparing your clients and loved ones for the high cost of long-term care as they age. Elizabeth will present this topic from the perspective of an attorney who has worked with clients through the wealth spectrum. The conversation will include a discussion on long-term care insurance, private pay options, as well as Medicaid. Elizabeth will also discuss the tax issues involved in this planning. Today, we're privileged here from Elizabeth Forspan, Managing Attorney at Forspan Clear based on Long Island, New York. Elizabeth practices in the areas of elder law, trust and estates and taxation. She regularly assists clients in achieving their Medicaid planning goals in a tax efficient manner through practical and considerate planning techniques. Elizabeth speaks throughout the United States on various aspects of elder care planning, tax law and estate planning. She has also been featured in New York Magazine, Market Watch and has been quoted in the New York Times. Prior to co-founding Forspan Clear, Elizabeth was the managing attorney of a leading elder law and trust and estates law firm. She also served as a tax manager with Ernst & Young. Today, Elizabeth will be speaking on long-term care costs and options at varying degrees of wealth. And with that introduction, I'll now turn the program over to Elizabeth. Jonathan, thank you so much. You always have the most wonderful introductions. And uh, um, I, I appreciate uh, you having me on this morning. Good morning to all the early risers. I'm not typically one of them, but for you guys and for Jonathan, I'm happy to be this morning. Um, and I apologize in advance. There are no slides today. Now, some people will be happy with that and some people will be unhappy with that. So for those of you who are not happy about no slides, I'm sorry. Um, it's quick and uh, I don't want to get bogged down in slides this morning, especially because I never usually move off of the first slide. Uh, if you need my contact information, uh, Jonathan could provide it to, uh, to all of you. Okay. So this morning, we're going to talk about the different ways and the different options to pay for long-term care. Now, there are, uh, of course, a, a number of different ways uh, to pay for long-term care. And when we speak about long-term care, what am I referring to? I'm talking about nursing home care, home care, assisted living care. All right. So this is something that all of us need to think about, of course, for ourselves. We need to think about it for our loved ones. And of course, we have so many professionals on the line today. We need to think about it for our clients. All right. So um, it's it's very interesting what we're going to talk about, hopefully interesting what we're going to talk about today, that typical programs to pay for long-term care that you might have thought about were not for higher net worth or moderate net worth people might actually be. So the first item that we're going to talk about is private pay. All right. Paying for care privately, meaning you use your own funds to pay for care. Now, just to give a sense of the cost of care, what are we looking at? 
So in the New York area, typically these days for home care, so if you get, if you hire an aide, a home health attendant through an agency, you're looking about $35 to $40 per hour, okay? And if we're talking about nursing home care in the downstate New York area um, and, and surrounding areas, of course, we're looking at about, I would say, anywhere between, on average, about eight, about $18,000 a month, maybe $17,000 a month, depending on the nursing home. Now, of course, none of us want our loved ones to be in the nursing home. No, none of us want to be in the nursing home. Um, but unfortunately, unfortunately, the reality is, is that many people do end up in nursing homes because the, the, the level of care that a person needs sometimes is too great to be provided for at home. So nursing home care, uh, $17,000, $18,000 a month. Very, very expensive, of course. Now, assisted living is like a whole different ball of wax. So assisted living, there is a huge range. Assisted living on the cheapest side, you're looking at about $5,000 or $5,500 a month, but that could go all the way up to an excess of $20,000 a month, depending on the level of care. Now, assisted living is not nursing home care, um, and typically assisted living facilities are almost all private pay. Um, when I say that, what do I mean? Most assisted living facilities do not accept Medicaid. There are a few, they're called ALPS, A-L-P, Assisted Living Program in New York that do accept Medicaid. Now, Medicaid will not pay for the entire um, bill. They'll pay for the healthcare portion. And then typically the individual social security and pension or some of their income will go to pay for the room and board. Okay, so assisted living is a huge, huge range. Um, and depending on, you know, some people need memory care. If a if family member or client needs memory care, that's going to be, and it's private pay, it's going to be very, very expensive. All right. So um, when we talk about private pay, that's where you or your client pays directly either an agency or an individual home health care attendant, let's say if you're getting home care, or if they pay the nursing home directly. Now, we have to be very, very aware of a lot of issues involved in private pay. When we talk about private pay, this is typically for our higher net worth clients. Because as we mentioned, $35 an hour or $40 an hour, that's a lot of money. So most of our clients are not going to fall in that category or they will fall in that category for a period of time until they may be able to qualify for other, other programs. There are some very important issues that we need to, to, to be aware of, uh, labor and employment law. So I'm not going to get into the, the technical aspects of that today, but we all know many people who have private pay aides, and this applies to people who have private pay nannies for their children or housekeepers, et cetera. And there are a host of labor uh, and employment law issues that we need to be, uh, that we need to consider when we're paying someone to take care of us or to take care of our loved ones, are we withholding for social security and Medicare, right? FICA, we all know what that is. Are we withholding for them? That's, that's, that's something that we need to do. Are we getting disability insurance? Are we paying into unemployment insurance for them? Are we making sure that they are working the requisite number of hours? If they working in excess of the allowable uh, hours, are we paying them overtime? Are we paying them time and a half? Are we um, satisfying the minimum wage requirements? And we know that minimum wage in New York is actually pretty pretty high uh, in relation 
uh, to the rest of rest of the country. So these are issues that people don't typically think about, but they are real. And unfortunately, I have seen many situations where it doesn't really end that well. So right. So I'll give you an example. Someone works as an aide for for you know a grandparent or a parent, and um, you know the the relationship ends for whatever reason, and then the aide and the aide is paid off the books, and then the aide goes and uh, files for unemployment, right? Uh, they go to file for unemployment, and then uh, they look it up, and they're like, "Wait, you never paid into the system. Nobody ever paid in for you." And then it becomes a whole a whole issue. Um, of course, if if uh, God forbid you have a home health attendant or an aide, and they fall or they get hurt on your property, right? Is there disability insurance? Um, what's what's the story over there? So these are these are real issues that we need to consider. Now, of course when you pay an agency, a private agency, where they're the employer and you're not the employer, these issues kind of fall aside. But the problem on that end is that's where the money, that's where it gets really expensive, right? That's where you see the $35, $40 an hour. Whereas if you had a private pay aid where you were the employer, maybe you'd be looking at $22, $25 an hour, okay? So these are important issues. The other thing that we want to consider is the deductibility of the of what you're paying for your care, right? So we all know about the uh, medical expense deduction, and this is a real issue for our higher net worth clients, right? How are they paying for their care? They're using typically their income, right? Or they're taking uh, excess distributions from their IRAs. Typically, we'll see with our higher net worth clients, they're taking money out of their huge IRAs. And of course, if it's not a Roth IRA, there's going to be a tax associated with anything that they withdraw from their IRA. They're taking in excess of the minimum required distributions because the minimum required distributions may not even come close to covering uh, what the cost of care is. So they're taking that out. And if they're paying an aid, let's say off the books, okay, I know that's a very, uh, a very loose term, but I think we all know what that means. They're paying their aid off the books. Are they going to be able to, to deduct that expense? No. Okay. So if they're paying an agency for their care, or if they're doing this the right way, then it would be considered a qualified medical expense that they would be able to deduct against their adjusted gross in income, of course, subject to the 7.5% floor. So the deductibility of, the, uh, of, of what they are paying for their care is very, very important for our higher net worth clients. Okay. The other thing that we want to consider for our, our higher net worth clients is if there's, you know, two spouses and they're paying privately, which means they're using their funds to cover the cost of their care. And they're paying for one spouse who's ill, call it the unhealthy spouse, and they use up a lot of their funds. And now they might not be so high net worth anymore, and they may not have so much left over um, for the other spouse when the other spouse will need care. So that's something um, that we should all we should all consider because these are this, you know, if someone needs round the clock care, this could be hundreds of thousands of dollars a year just for home care. Okay. And of course we talked about nursing home care, which could be in excess of 200, 250,000. And the reality is is that in a nursing home, if you have a client in the nursing home and you're paying the client is paying privately, they're paying privately for the nursing home. That $20,000 a month is for the nursing home. But you're, or they're also going to want to have a private aid to come in, at least to give them breakfast in the morning, to get them dressed, maybe to put them into pajamas at night. And so that's an additional expense. So just something, something to think about. Now, 
what, are the, what, what is the next option for paying for care? Of course, long-term care insurance. And uh, many of you have heard me say this before. I'm a very big proponent of long-term care insurance. I think it works really well. I myself have a long-term care insurance policy. Um, that's where you uh, purchase a, an insurance policy that uh, would pay for care in the future if you needed it, right? The type, type of custodial long-term type care that we're talking about. Now, there's there's a, a lot changing in the long-term care insurance world, which I am not qualified to talk about. Jonathan is much more qualified to talk about that. He's helped a number of our clients uh, with these issues, um, and they've all been exceedingly happy. So thank you, Jonathan. Um, so there's the traditional long-term care insurance, which is like kind of like a use it or lose it policy. Like it's almost like car insurance, right? You pay in, you pay the premiums, you pay the pay premiums, you pay the premiums for all these years. And then if you need it, right, if you are not able to do your two out of five or now three out of five activities of daily living um, and you put in um, a claim, then the insurance company will hopefully pay. That's uh, uh, kind of what I would refer to as the use it or lose it traditional long-term care insurance policy. And if you don't use it or if your client doesn't use it, let's say they die prematurely or let's say they live to a nice ripe old age and they're healthy and then they just go to sleep one night and they don't wake up, which is, I guess, kind of the way that most people want to go. Um, and then they never use their long-term care insurance. Well, what happens to it? Well, it's gone, right? That's the traditional policy. It's gone. Um, a lot of people now are, are purchasing um, uh, hybrid type policies where there's a life insurance policy with a long-term care rider, or, you know, there's some, you know, some two components combined where if you don't, if you don't use a long-term care insurance and there, there's life insurance left over when you die, then your family can benefit from the life insurance. And I think that's really has gained uh, popularity these days. And um, there's, of course, issues with deductibility. We're not going to get into the de deductibility of uh, long-term care insurance premiums just because there's not enough time today. That could be a uh, course in and unto itself. And I'm sure there have been many about it. Not sure if I've done it, probably. Um, but so we're not going to talk about deductibility, but there are certain deductibility issues of the premiums if it's with a life insurance policy, et cetera. Um, now, I think that these are gaining popularity because most of the most of the insurance companies who were previously selling these long-term care insurance policies, those use it or lose it policies, are not doing so anymore, particularly in this region, um, because they didn't plan well. They didn't plan for people to be living this long. Um, and uh, many people are living with dementia and uh, they live very long lives and they need care for a, a long a, a long number of years. And so those uh, long-term care insurance policies are really not popular anymore and not that much available. And the other thing to note, and I'm sure many of you know this for yourselves and also for your clients who call you up in a panic, is that baked into those policies and to the, to the contracts and those use it or lose it traditional long-term care insurance policies, the insurance company reserved the right to raise premiums and boy, have they raised premiums. I had a client come to me this week that her policy was quadrupling. It was becoming so, so expensive. And um, they of course gave her different options to lower it. Now, the long-term care insurance is wonderful, but the problem that we see, there's a couple of problems we see with long-term care insurance is that oftentimes it just doesn't pay enough for the care. Okay. So people purchase a policy. Listen, there are some policies like those old John Hancock or Genworth policies that people have from back in the day where it's going to pay $600 a day and it's an unlimited lifetime. There's no maximum and there's a 5% inflation rider. Those are wonderful 
they don't really exist that much. I mean, sometimes we see it and I'm so excited and I jump out of my skin. I'm so happy for my clients, but those are few and far between. Um, typically what we see is that the clients will come in with policies that will pay $200 a day or $150 a day, something in that, in that area. Well, we already talked about the cost of care. You know, you're looking at potentially $350 or $400 a day um, for, for private pay care, maybe more than that if you need a split shift, right? So there's, just to take a step back, there's a live-in, which is a 24-7 aid, right? where if someone needs live-in care, it means they don't need their aid to be awake and up with them during the night, all right? And so what that means is very, in a very, very strangely, a 24-hour aid can actually just be paid for 13 hours under the labor laws. How does that work? <laughs> I try to explain this to my clients all the time and they're like, wait, Liz, explain that to me again. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna explain it. You can have a 24-hour aid or a live-in aid, but they're only paid for 13 hours because a live-in aid is an aid that has eight hours of uninterrupted sleep and three one-hour meal times. Okay, so the eight hours of sleep and the three hours of meal time is eleven. Twenty-four minus eleven is thirteen. So typically, if a client has a live-in aid, they will actually be paying for thirteen hours and not twenty-four hours. But there are some clients who need a split shift. Right. That means, and we've all seen this in our life, they that the client or the patient or the person needs um, an aid to be up during the night because that you know individual gets up during the night. They need to go to the bathroom or they have dementia and they might be wandering. And so a split shift is where you have two aids each day, 12 and 12. Now, if you're paying privately for that, or if you're using your long-term care insurance for that, that's a lot of money. 24 times 35 or 40 dollars an hour, that's a lot of money. So a big problem with the long-term care insurance that we see is that people just did not have sufficient uh, coverage. Um, the, the benefits were just, were, are just not, not enough. And by the time people realize this, it's already too late because in order to qualify for additional insurance or for long-term care insurance, you need to go through medical underwriting. Yeah, it's, like typical, it's like life insurance, right? And if you're older and you have some health considerations, let's say the person has diabetes or heart disease, something like that, they may not qualify. They're typically not going to qualify for long-term care insurance. And so that's the second big problem that we see. The second big problem is that um, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's too late. Many people just wait and they wait to get the long-term care insurance and then they turn a specific age or they have some health consideration and they can no longer qualify. And another thing that we see is that people just say it's just too expensive, right? Now that we see that the premiums are going up tremendously, just like my client who whose premiums had quadrupled, they just say, you know, I don't want to pay these premiums anymore. I just can't afford it with all my other expenses. I um I don't remember a time that I have ever told a client to cancel their long-term care insurance policy. Um, because I do think when when we get into the nitty-gritty of the planning, it it works to have it for a period of time. Not going to get into that today, unfortunately. Um, so long-term care insurance, very important, not always available, not always enough. Okay. If you're it's paying $150 a day and the cost of your care is $400 a day, it was great that you had the long-term care insurance and it will help defray some of the costs, but yes, you still have a huge shortfall. 
So then we talk about the third option, which is not an option. So I shouldn't even call it the third option, which is Medicare, right? We know that most people at the age of 65 are going to qualify for Medicare. It's a health insurance program for uh, nearly all Americans. And um, it, it's, it's wonderful. What Medicare is wonderful, but it's health insurance. Medicare does not pay for long-term care. Medicare may pay for rehabilitation after a hospitalization, right? So we know that if someone goes to a hospital, if someone's a, call it checked into a hospital for at least three days, and then they need to go to rehabilitation, they have to go to a rehab facility, that uh, Medicare will pay for some of their, of, their, um, of their rehab, but not long-term care. Medicare may pay up to 100 days in a rehabilitation facility or to receive rehab, may, may, because not everybody is going to qualify for the 100 days. If their physical therapist or occupational therapist deem that they have plateaued and they are no longer getting any better or they're not improving um, or making progress, then Medicare will stop paying. And the other thing to note is that even if Medicare does pay the 100 days, there is a copayment, a very large copayment, almost $200 that starts at day 21. So um, $200 a day, that is. So... Um, we have to we have to consider that now most of our clients if they're in rehab and they're in their medicare days most of them their medicare supplemental will cover for day 21 through 100 the copayment um for example we have most of i would say most of our clients our, our older clients have uh, united healthcare aarp as their supplemental um most of them were in the f plan f like frank uh which you can't get anymore. I think it turned into the G plan. That's going to cover in most cases the day 21 through 100 uh, co-payment. But Medicare after that is not going to be paying. Okay. It's a, a common misconception, but after uh, 100 days are up, Medicare is not going to be paying anymore. And earlier, if uh, the person has been deemed to not be improving. Okay. So then we're left with the Medicaid program. That's number four here, or maybe I should say 3A. The Medicaid program. So we typically think of Medicaid as a program for poor people, um, which is what it was designed to be. It was designed to be a health insurance program for indigent people. It has turned into a program for long-term care for not so indigent people. And the theory is, a theory that the government has is that if you are willing to impoverish yourself, we are willing to pay for your care. Now, what we're not going to get into today is the five-year look back and how you need to do planning in advance, right? We have to plan with our clients in advance for nursing home care, of course. Home care in New York still, I'll give you a little bit of an update. Home care still has no look back. We know that, or those of you who have seen me uh, give a similar presentation or have seen me present on the update, Medicaid update before know that in 2020, in April of 2020, they changed the rules where they were going to impose a two and a half year look back for home care, meaning they were going to go back and look at all transfers that you made in the two and a half years prior to applying for Medicaid home care for a home, for home, health, home health assistance. Now, that was a huge earthquake because New York, unlike pretty much every other state, almost every single other state, did not have a look back for home care, meaning you could transfer assets on November 30th and December 1st, you'd be eligible for uh, Medicaid. No look back whatsoever. And they changed that in April of 2020. But because of COVID, it has been pushed back. The implementation has been pushed back, pushed back, pushed back, where today there is still 
Thankfully, no look back for home care. Now it is set to go into effect April 1st, 2024, which is in less than three months from now, um, but we anticipate it to be further pushed back. But as of today, that's that's what it is. Um, so why do I mention this? If you guys have any clients, if you have any clients who you think might need home care within the next year, it'll be better to apply before April than after April, okay? So the Medicaid program is for the indigent, but what does that mean? People create trusts. They create an irrevocable trust, one that has been tested by, whose provisions has been tested by Medicaid. They transfer their home into the trust. They transfer their brokerage accounts into the trust. They transfer their non-qualified annuities into the trust. That is a possibility if it's a grantor trust, which pretty much almost 100% of the time, these will be grantor trusts. And they wait the requisite period of time, and then they're eligible for Medicaid. Now, it sounds very easy. It is not, okay? Because when we do this planning, we have to be very mindful of a number of things. The tax considerations, which I'll talk about in just a moment. The financial considerations. Are we taking assets and putting them into a trust and taking them off the table for our clients? Those assets might be generating income. Is the trust going to allow the client to have income, the grantor? Is it going to give income to the grantor? Is that going to create a Medicaid problem? Well, so we need to think about not only how it's going to be impacted in a Medicaid sense, but how the client is going to be impacted in a financial sense. Will they have enough to live off of in the next number of years before they need care, right? People are typically doing this planning when they're still relatively healthy. And so they can't necessarily divest themselves of all their assets and all their income uh, and put it in the trust for some possibility that in the future they might need Medicaid. We have to figure it out and we have to plan in a very um, thoughtful way to make sure that the client will have enough to, to use over the next number of years before they might need Medicaid. And that's why I, I, I always say this, and I know I sound like a broken record, but if you are doing Medicaid planning for your clients, you must be doing it together with the financial advisor. There, there is just no way around it because as attorneys, you know, we're qualified for some things, not much, but we're qualified for some things, but we're not, we're not financial people typically, right? We're not financial advisors. Um, clients ask me financial questions all the time. And I say, that is a financial consideration. And that's where we need to bring in your advisor. We need to see what, what this is going to look like over the years. Um, so that's very, very, very important. Um, and then of course, when we do the planning and we divest our clients of assets so that at one point in the future, they may qualify for Medicaid and have the government pay for some or all of their care, we need to make sure we're doing it in a tax efficient manner, right? If we are transferring assets into a trust, are we maintaining the basis step up, which is very important. Everybody's going mad and all crazy over uh, revenue ruling 2023-2. That should not be an issue. You should still be able to obtain the basis step up so long as there are provisions in that trust that would have the assets includable in the, in the taxable estate of the settlor. A limited power of appointment, income to the grantor. So we have to be very mindful of the way that we draft these trusts to make sure that if the trust needs to be revoked, even though it's an irrevocable trust, that it can be revoked. There's a way to do that in New York. Um, and that we also maintain um, a basis step up. Now, you might say to me, but wait a minute, if we're going for the basis step up, 
uh, by definition, you only get a basis step up, a step up on assets that are includable in your taxable estate. And that's why, and that's a great point, but that's why we're talking about people at varying degrees of wealth, right? We talked about the private pay. We talked about the people on long-term with long-term care insurance. Now we're talking about the people who we don't care about the estate inclusion, right? We want the estate inclusion for the basis step up, but we're not worried about estate taxes because they're under the six and a half million dollars that you, or, or, or whatever, whatever it is um, in that, in, in that particular jurisdiction. Um, they're under the $13 million on the federal level, and they're under the state level um, in terms of their net worth. So in those cases, we, we want to be mindful to put our, put our priority on the, uh, the, the future capital gains tax issues and the income tax issues and achieve a, a basis step up. So we want to always be doing it in a very a tax efficient manner, and we want to be doing it in a financially efficient and mindful manner. And um, so that's so that's uh, that's that on the on the Medicaid. No, that was very brief. Um, assisted living, as I mentioned, typically there are not going to be many assisted living facilities that take Medicaid, and so Medicaid is generally, generally, but not always, going to be a private pay situation. There are situations where we have clients that are in an assisted living facility, paying the assisted living facility privately but they also need an aid and we have been able to actually get them Medicaid for the aid. Now that is not an available option in every assisted living facility. We have to look at the contract and make sure that the services are not duplicative, but in many assisted living facilities, that is an option. The next question that you might have is, well, if they've divested themselves of their assets so that they can have Medicaid pay for the aid, how are they paying for the long-term, for the uh, assisted living facility? And of course, that is something that we need to be mindful of in the planning. We need to put aside a specific pool of money, maybe not to the trust because we can't have money from the trust go back to the individual if they want to qualify for Medicaid, but maybe we give a set amount of money to the children. Oh, I said it, I know. Um, but we have to think about every case differently. Every case has to be thought of differently because everybody's family situation is different. Everyone's financial situation is different. Their assets are different and their income is different. We may have clients with a huge amount of assets, but their income is not what you would think it is. It's kind of on the low side. Or we may see clients who have low assets, but very high income because they have these huge pensions. Let's say they were a retired cop or a retired teacher. So every situation needs to be thought of differently. So in a half hour, I think I just gave you, I think the top four or three and a half ways to pay for uh, long-term care. Um, it has been a pleasure as always. If anybody needs uh, anything or has any further questions, I would be happy to answer them. Not now because I, I know we don't take questions, but everyone can email me. It's eforspan at forspanclear.com. Jonathan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you, Elizabeth, for sharing your insights on long-term care costs and options at varying degrees of wealth. This is one of those topics that comes up extremely frequently with my clients who are approaching retirement or who are in retirement. Everyone has someone in their family who needed or needs long-term care, and we're faced with the exorbitant costs associated with that care. Hopefully, this program offered you a good overview with the options and how to pay for it. I should also mention that each state had has their own nuances when it comes to planning. And if you and your family want to make Aliyah, this is something you should discuss with your advisor or attorney as this move will impact your planning as well. 
And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any comments or questions, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, as I end every episode, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Jonathan on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.